Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Hey, Extrology listeners. Just to let you know, today's episode includes discussion on the sensitive subject of self-harm and suicide. If you or someone you know is in need of help or immediate support, then you can reach those wonderful people at the Samaritans on 116-123. Harry Bliss is co-founder and CEO at mental health wellbeing platform Champion Health. Early career experience with one of the UK's largest corporate healthcare providers left Harry feeling underwhelmed by both the product and cost. The tragic and utterly unexpected loss of a friend to suicide in 2018, following a two-week bout of workplace stress, set Harry on a mission to change and save lives, making healthier easier for everyone. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Harry Bliss, welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Great to have you on as my guest this afternoon. And it's customary with conversations such as these. We'll get into the uh, the good stuff around the here and the now in due course, but I'm keen, if I may, to start with those early days. So tell us, where did you grow up and uh, what was childhood and school like for you? I grew up in Sheffield, quite central Sheffield, and I suppose the whole of Sheffield is almost central because it's not a huge place. And went to quite a, a sort of standard state school. It was a really interesting experience because around 30% of the, the population there had, spoke English as a second language. So there, were, there was a lot that I learned around culture and talking to people from different backgrounds. And so I've got a lot to, to thank my school for in terms of just enabling that wide range of, wide ranged upbringing within there. That's interesting. What, what do you think that as you reflect back, hindsight, a wonderful thing. What do you think that early experience has equipped you with? I think it's, it's able to, to come from different angles with different people. Um, different people f- face different pressures, face different cultural challenges. And something that's very important to me that we'll touch upon later on is being inclusive and accessible. And you can only truly be inclusive and accessible if you've hung around with those people and people from different walks of life. People that have had it better or worse um, come from different backgrounds. And I just think it gives you and it's given me a really well-rounded viewpoint in terms of um, in terms of the UK um, and what challenges people face. Interesting. So you, you've a you've a BSc and MSc in physical activity and health, as I understand it. Yeah. Where did your interest in in the subject first arise? So I think it came from me always being relatively active and I think my, my viewpoint before university was there's going to be a huge shift from the medical sphere of prescribing people with drugs and pharmaceutical prescription through to lifestyle prescription. And what I mean by that is prescribing good sleep, for example, and sleep hygiene, good nutrition, uh, physical activity within there. And that's exactly where the landscape shifted. If we had, if we could bottle up exercise in pill form, everyone in the world would be taking it. It would be the most genius piece of medication ever. It prevents, um, it reduces the risk of dementia. It improves our mental health. It's as effective as antidepressant medication. It improves our cardiovascular health, all areas of health and well-being it impacts. So I spotted that very early on, I think. 
And and how? That's 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 sorry to interrupt, but how? Because that's incredibly that's incredible insight, respectfully, for what I would imagine at, at a relatively young age, to have had that insight is quite startling, it strikes me. Yeah, I think I was thinking of what where are the jobs going to be and what do I love? And the two things married up really, and, and it's a little bit cliche that people say, What is it that you really love and what would you like to do? I want to help people and I want to be able to have a career that's stable um, and I'm financially secure. So that was the avenue that I'd, I'd taken. And I think it's, it's really paid off in terms of that. The one thing that really helped me was I took two years off in between A-levels and going to university because quite frankly, I just was a little bit loose when I was sort of 18, 19, as we all probably were. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I went out to play cricket in Auckland, which was just, and in New Zealand. It was just incredible. And again, learned a lot about myself and life. And it's quite, again, cliche um, saying that. But that was the time that I was able to reflect and go, what is it that I want to do? I'm going to spend £27,000 at university. I better do something that I can get the most out of. And, and that's where it, it led me to. So you mentioned cricket. Was cricket your sport growing up? Yeah, so it was all sorts of sports that I loved playing, some better than others. Um, but cricket was my main sport that I played. So I went out to New Zealand for six months and trying to pick it back up now, but uh, not with too much success, unfortunately. What do you think you learned from that, uh, that New Zealand experience? Uh, independence is just the, the number one thing. Um, and independence before university, because even at university, I'd love to say that I was independent, but I was in Leeds. And I come home every month and bring home the washing and X, Y, and Z and raid my mum's fridge, as you do. And I think in New Zealand, you are literally the other side of the world and it's just you. And you've got to make friends with people that you've never met before. They don't need to be nice to you. There's nothing necessarily in it for them. And you just have to learn to build relationships and fend for yourself. And I think that was a big lesson. I got very homesick, in all honesty, and I was experiencing anxiety when I was out there. But I wouldn't change it for the world. And it, it really helped me grow up because I probably had a relatively sheltered life before. Um, and I was incredibly privileged to go out there. But it did teach me in how to how to fend for myself, I think. And I think it's, that's quite an interesting insight as well into the community of sport. I've always maintained, if I look at you know conversations I have with my own children, I've always felt that if you play a sport, whatever that sport may be, but it doesn't matter, therefore, where you end up in the world. And to your point, yeah. you know, you... That loneliness is a feature, landing on the other side of the world at, at 18, 19, whatever age you might have been. It's no mean feat. It takes you right outside of your comfort zone. But immediately, you've got that kind of common interest and common purpose through sport with a group of people. You can find a tribe very quickly. And that, you know, whether that's cricket, whether it's whatever, whatever your sport is, doesn't matter what it is, you can find the tribe. And, and then very quickly, you can start to put down some roots which, yeah. which I, I, you know, it, we're having this conversation uh, a couple of days after all the nonsense that has been the uh, European Super League. And you look at the power that sport, the passion that sport stirs, the power that it affords people, the way it really stirs emotions and gathers communities and groups together. And that, that in itself, the power of sport is wonderful. But I guess you might have seen that from just having that connection with people again on the other side of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And it is something that, as you say, it binds people and everyone then suddenly talks the same language. And I went to a school, as I mentioned before, where there was a lot of um, a lot of kids that spoke Urdu and, and they were from a Pakistani origin. And the just passion for cricket was amazing. And we straight away were able to, to really bond on that commonality. And um, it was just so good to be able to have that common theme. And sport does bring people together. I, I really do think that. And it it taught me a lot of life lessons. Again, a little bit cliche. I don't want to talk in cliches for the whole of the podcast, but it really does teach you life lessons such as how to lose, 
the fact that hard work pays off, all of these kinds of things that I've really looked to implement within Champion Health and the business, I've really learned through sport, I think. And so tell me, kind of the, the heroes growing up, the posters on the wall, who did you look up to? Uh, it's probably uh, Freddie Flintoff. I sometimes get that I sound a little bit like him and look a little bit like him. So I don't know if that's a, a good or a bad thing. But um, yeah, he, he was my idol. It was a, he was a very normal person that was playing a bit of a sort of middle and upper class sport. And yeah, I remember seeing his interview where he said, I did all right for a fat lad to the media after the media were just lambasting him and he got man of the match. And just that for me was just the humility and the yeah how humble he is. But he's obviously worked very hard as well. And recently he's come out and spoke very openly about his anxiety and about his eating disorder, which people just thought an eating disorder, and many people did, um, thought it was for, for teenage girls. And we just know now that's not true. And the bravery for him to do that when there is such a big stigma um, I think it's just taken him to that next level for me. So a little bit of a man crush, I'd say. <laughs> well, I, I, I have very fond memories. I'm a, I'm a huge sports fan. And whilst yeah, certainly I would say I'm a very average cricketer, but I'm a first class <laughs> supporter. Uh, I have very fond memories of the 2005 Ashes series, having gone the best part of nigh on 20 years of my adult life desperate for an Ashes win and never seeing one. 2005 was a very, very special time. And his part in that was, uh, well, it's the stuff of folklore, isn't it? Exactly. And I think I was spoiled because I was relatively young when I saw that and I didn't have the 20 years of, uh, of pain and grueling seeing everyone else go over to Australia and losing 5-0. So, but yeah, that, that was the thing that hooked me. Um, I absolutely loved the contest. And yeah, it just gripped me to, to then be a, an avid cricket fan and player. So, so at what point did you first start to think, before we talk about champion health, what point did you first start to think that running your own business might be the direction of travel? I think it's, my mum's always run a business. So she founded her business 27 years ago. I'm 27 years old um, for any of the listeners. So I definitely wasn't planned. That's one thing I can confirm. But she started a law firm. And the reason why she did it, she was offered some very senior positions as partner um, and she could have gone for that security, but what she wanted was the freedom to be able to run her own firm with her own culture and her own legacy and impact. And having three children, setting up that business, leafleting door to door while she was six months pregnant with me, and now running a firm that's extremely successful in South Yorkshire. I've just seen that and I've, I've really been inspired by her in all honesty and she's been a huge supporter of me. I've also on the flip side seen my dad work for the public sector and I just thought I'd love to do something in business. The sort of pace of the public sector didn't interest me too much. And I wanted to have a legacy, I guess. And I thought the best way to have a legacy is to do it yourself and get a team of really high quality people around you um, to be able to build something special. So that's what that, I think that's why I've, I've realized that running a business is, is for me. And did you have that sort of, you know, is there that classic sort of, we read of these classic entrepreneurial stories, you know, I was selling sherbet dib dabs out the boot of a car at a car boot sale aged seven or something like that. Was, was there any of those kind of classic entrepreneurial traits that, that oftentimes we're led to? I don't know if there was when I was really young. I'd always try and sell things to people just to get my own way, I guess. So I was kind of a salesperson when I was younger, I, I, I guess. But I think what I realized was I, I don't like settling for something that's mediocre. And the place that I worked previously, I worked for the, the largest workplace health provider. And I just really was underwhelmed with what they were doing. They were making a lot of money without delivering value. And there's only so long that you can do that for, especially in this world that's moving so fast and is innovating at speed. So I realized then that if they're not going to be able to do it, I actually approached them with Champion's idea 
And my line manager, who I bought a bottle of red wine before the pandemic to say a massive thank you, said that, Harry, I love the idea, but two things will happen if you present this to head office. The first thing is you're 24, they'll laugh you out of the room. The second thing is they'll take the idea and, uh, and run away with it and not give you any credit. So at that point, I, I just I was so disengaged with the whole organisation, with the mission, and I realised that things could be done better. So what better way to set something up yourself and, and actually do it? So what was that idea? What, what was the story, if you like, behind Champion Health? Or what is the story behind Champion Health? It was really about making things more inclusive and accessible and not making well-being just for the, the sort of top level people within the organization. Now, there is naturally a hierarchy within any corporate organization, but I, it just felt very immoral that these executives and directors were getting these really in-depth health assessments and health checks whilst they were able to go through to Barbados and look after their stress levels for two weeks of the year and sun themselves. And whilst the receptionists and the admin staff and the cleaners and some of the marketing departments, they weren't able to get any of these well-being benefits. And actually, they were really struggling with their financial well-being, mental well-being, sleep, stress, etc. And so I wanted to make it inclusive and accessible to the whole of the workforce. And so not making well-being something that can only be accessed by people that have money and have finances. I really wanted to impact everyone within society. And that's why I love workplace health is because it does impact almost all of society going forwards. So what were some of the the challenges that you were first presented with in terms of getting Champion Health off the ground? Having a squeaky voice was probably one of them um, and not being able to grow a any kind of beard. But jokes aside, I was, yeah, I was 24 at the time. I think there was a lack of experience there, but I would actually flip that into a positive in the, the lack of experience just made me question why for absolutely everything. Why are we doing that? But the biggest mistake I made was not having confidence in myself at times. And we recruited someone that was extremely high up within the, the big four in technology. And he joined. But unfortunately, that didn't work out because he was recommending things from 10 or 15 years ago. And I wasn't trusting someone that now is my co-founder um, and now is a shareholder within Champion Health and probably my, one of my best mates. And he started his own business when he was 14 years old. And he was the first ever logo designer on eBay, hugely entrepreneurial person, doesn't have a huge amount of qualifications, GCSEs, A-levels and so on, didn't go to university, but was right about absolutely everything. And whilst I was looking for the grey hair and the experience to be able to, I suppose, just give myself that layer of comfort, what I needed was someone else that could push me, could push the business, could take this company to that next level. And that was really Ricky, who is our, our co-founder and our, our chief technology officer. And at what, what point did you realise that? Sorry, to what point did you think, actually, do you know what, I'm going about this the wrong way? Because that's, again, that's that's very insightful and, and, and that's an early learn, you know, but, but a, a painful learn, but an early one. So at what point did you realise that that was the, the change you needed to make? After the second time I made the mistake, in, in all honesty. So I made the mistake twice and then realised that everything that Ricky was recommending was spot on. And I just agreed with him. We could go for a beer and we could have a chat. And we worked at just an incredible speed. And there was someone in between me and Ricky in terms of a marketing professional. And the minute that we, we just removed her out of the equation, Ricky and I came together. And you'll know what it's like when you just really hit it off with someone. It's almost like a, a bloody romantic relationship. And my girlfriend's probably going to listen to this and um, <laughs> have some serious words with me. But we just really got on and just got each other. And he's got a really powerful story in terms of his why behind why well-being is so important to him. And from there, we've just gone from strength to strength. And having that co-founder has been absolutely imperative. I would, the business wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him, quite simply. 
So was there was there a pivotal moment where you thought, do you know what, we're onto, we really are onto something here? Great, you know, all the passion that you have, I, I could sense it very much comes across. You can see you had a you had a vision, you had a, a clear desire to make a change, to do good, to make it happen. But was there a you know, transferring that knowledge into ultimately a revenue generating business opportunity is never easy. Was there a pivotal moment where you thought, do you know what, we really are onto something here? I think there's so many of those moments. And I think people in entrepreneurship sometimes say it was this big one moment and it was an overnight success. I really don't think there is anything such as an, an overnight success. Jeff Bezos will talk about that with Amazon. That it took 10 years before he really got traction with the platform. And there are just loads of micro moments that feel huge at the time. But you look back at it and think, well, that was a great thing or that failed. And it felt massive at the time in terms of the achievement and the highs and the lows are just so dramatic when you're running a startup and, and you're, you're an entrepreneur. But I think for me, it's, it, there's been so many that I, I could touch upon. So we launched a platform two and a half years ago. We've actually just relaunched another platform, which has been described as the Netflix of well-being three months ago. And that's probably been the biggest thing is listening to our members, listening to our customers, listening to employees about how we can improve the platform listening to the good, the bad and the ugly and then improving it going forwards. And I'd say that's been the biggest thing for me. But it's all micro learnings really that then lead to developing a much better solution for our clients and for our members. So t tell us, what do you hope to achieve with Champion Health? I, I really want to be a household name that has an impact at the heart of it. That's the number one thing. We're always going to be mission driven and I'm sure we'll get onto the story and the why behind Champion shortly. But the fire in my belly is to help people and to have an impact. And that truly is the case. Off the back of that, a lot of people say, shouldn't you be a charity? I'd say absolutely no. Um, we're providing a service. We then deliver impact. Off the back of delivering impact, off the back of boosting well-being and performance within an organization, we then deserve to generate a healthy amount of profit and to be able to grow the organization going forward just because we're in well-being. I really don't think we should be a charity. There are much worse organizations making money out there that aren't having a positive impact. So I want to be running this organization as I go bold and as I go grayer going forwards. I want to be able to grow it and impact many lives in terms of our internal team. But I also want to hear more feedback like I heard around two months ago that one individual was struggling with suicidal thoughts and they got into expert services because of our platform that that got them in there. And that's the why for me is keeping people well, first of all, but how can we get people well that are struggling with musculoskeletal health, with mental health, with financial instability, for example. So I think that's my why. Money's secondary. It comes following achieving our mission and having an impact. So tell us about that, that range of services that you offer. Tell us a bit about, about what it is that Champion Health can do for, for employees around the country. Yeah. So at the moment, did you have a Netflix subscription at the moment? Yes. Yes, I do. Do you have an iPhone smartphone? Yes. Yeah. Do you have Spotify? Yes. Yeah. So all of those things, we all of those companies we studied, we studied Apple, we studied Netflix, we studied Spotify. And where well-being is falling down is everything's hard. We don't know where to turn. We might turn to Dr. Google and get some really irresponsible information. Things aren't personalized. If I'm going to look after my mental health as well as my musculoskeletal health, as well as my sleep, as well as my nutrition, as well as my financial well-being, I could keep going on, but I've, I've just not quite got enough oxygen in the, in the flat. You'd have to work with and have and pay for 15 different providers. And if you look at Netflix, I wouldn't have a Netflix subscription if there were just sitcoms on Netflix. 
I wouldn't have a Spotify subscription if they just had ABBA. I might tell a bit of a lie there. Um, but in terms of those providers, they cover everything. And that's what we're looking to do when it comes to well-being. And whilst Netflix are able to personalize the platform to me and recommend Peaky Blinders or The Crown to watch, for example, tonight, we need well-being to do that going forward. We need to recommend personalized content. So if you're a new parent, how can we support you and your child with their sleep? If you're someone struggling with your finances, how can we give you the financial education to empower you? If you're struggling with high stress levels, can we give you a mindfulness program to follow to alleviate some of that stress? And that's what we're looking to do. So through a hyper-personalized program that covers all areas of well-being, and I really mean all areas from the menopause all the way through to mental health, we want to be able to empower individuals' well-being. That's an incredibly powerful and compelling proposition. But so vast is the, is the thing I keep coming back. The thought that keeps springing in my, up in my mind is, goodness, that's enormous. Where do you even begin to start to understand the range and the complexity of challenges that people will face? Yeah. Because to your point, there's no one size fits all, I think one. But secondly, there's just so much you could go into. Where do you, how do you focus or maybe don't you? Do you ensure that there is, you know, is it better to be a mile wide than a mile deep with, with what you're talking about? Or can you be both? That's what we, that's the answer. We want to be both. So it starts with a personalized assessment that takes about 15 or 20 minutes to go through that looks at all of these areas. And off the back of that, we've got an algorithm and a system in place that our 60 academics and developers have worked on that then recommend specific things. So straight away, you can see the areas that you're doing really well. And that's where well-being falls down. It's all, a load of well-being is about what you need to do. And it's about punishing you for not doing it. We want to do the opposite. We want to reward people for those behaviors that they're doing really well. But then we want to recommend starting points and we want to take them on that journey. So we can take them through a really specific journey following that assessment, producing a report, and then they can use the platform day on day. And the platform's very clever in the way that it learns about the individual, what they like, what they engage with. And then they can, they've got unlimited access to workouts with Olympians, with Paralympians, with yoga instructors unlimited access to mindfulness, to sleep stories, to nutrition plans, to learning and development content on any area of well-being, performance and life. So that's the key thing is that it is so broad, but how do we make it really specific and relatable to that individual? And that's what we've worked very hard on. So how has, you know, here we are, goodness, 14 months at least on from the discovery of, of COVID-19 and also not the discovery, but certainly when it started to impact significantly, I think first lockdown was what, 23rd of March, 2020, yes. something like that. So yeah. just a, a 13, 14 months or so ago, how has COVID-19 impacted the conversation around health and well-being? do you think in the UK? And if I might premise that question with, you know, I, anecdotally, I look around and it struck me that it strikes me that there are more people engaged in physical activity now, whether that's because of the impact of home-based working, people have more time, whether that's furlough, people have more time to devote to these things, or actually that's because people have become more mindful generally about their well-being. I don't know, you know, but anecdotally, I see more people running on bikes, mm -hmm. going to gyms, doing yoga classes, out for a walk, whatever it might, whatever the thing might be. So how, how has COVID-19, based on your experience, impacted that conversation around health and well-being, do you think? I think there are two conversations that it's impacted. One is the, the big conversation with businesses. It's, we definitely see it more around the demand for well-being services and well-being supports, which, if I'm being honest, the issues were there before COVID. We know that over 25% of the workforce are experiencing moderate to severe depressive symptoms 
or anxiety at any one time. The data that we held before COVID was showing that there's 10% of the workforce, again, at any one time that's experiencing suicidal thoughts, one in 10. So there were issues before, and we really don't want to sweep that under the carpet and blame COVID purely for the issues that are widespread within our businesses and within society that's leading to a huge productivity loss. But it's definitely accelerated that conversation. And whilst decision making was so much slower when it came to well-being, companies suddenly started saying we need to do this. It wasn't a nice to have for them. It was suddenly a need to have a need to invest in our people. And that's going to have a huge knock on impact. I don't truly believe if I'm speaking really openly and honestly, and this is just an opinion of mine, that the well-being impact of COVID has truly happened. I think there's been a huge wartime mentality and a sort of Lord Kitchener approach of your country needs you and we can't use the NHS services because they're overstretched. And there's actually going to be a huge spike. And we talk about these waves and a third wave of mental health issues, but also back pain from people working from unsafe workstations on their sofa or on their kitchen desk. And uh, you see these things of Lou Roll holding up the computer to a, a nice height, for example. And so I think there's actually going to be a big issue in six months to a year with people having put off these things, and that's just going to manifest and get worse. So that's the employer side and the business side that we work with. The employee side, I think people are just so much more mindful of well-being and of their own well-being. They realize how fragile it can be at times, and our well-being can change day to day. And that's a big myth that if someone is struggling with their mental health, they're always struggling with their mental health. If they have a diagnosis of depression, they're always going to be struggling with depressive symptoms. It's not the case at all. People have good days, people have bad days. And I just think that people have realized the things that they're having more bad days now and the things that are really triggering that. And that's why people are getting out. People are, um, without sounding too hippie, getting into nature, getting outside, um, enjoying natural light, because we are stuck between four walls. And our commute at the moment is often to the toilet and just downstairs to our, our, our own home office instead of all the way into the workplace, which actually could be seen as a healthy thing for some people. So I think employees and the, the general population are just more aware of what the triggers are, what the issues are, and that they need to do something proactively to look after their, their own well-being. The issues that you referred to earlier, for example, those with suicidal thoughts, as an example, have those issues always been there? And are we just getting better at understanding them and talking about them? Or have there been societal changes that have driven that kind of, I suppose for want of a better expression, that, that kind, those kind of numbers? I don't want to put those sort yeah, of yeah. trite terms on such important issues, but uh, is it society that's, and changes that have driven that impact? Or have they always been there? We're just getting better at talking about them. We're getting better at talking about them. So the data up until recently was showing that suicides nationally in the UK were reducing year on year. So it's not that there are more suicides. There were actually in the last one to two years, but it didn't spike hugely. It's the fact that we're talking about it. And there's a lot of conversation about Generation Z and X and so on. It's hard to keep up with all of these generations now. But the most common age group and the most common demographic for, and there's a weird phrase I'm going to use, but it's successful suicide attempts are men between the age of 40 to 50. And so that's often the group where there is the biggest stigma still. There are the most pressures from a financial standpoint. You've got the family pressures within there as well. Sometimes there's just a, a little bit of um, insecurity about talking about mental health. Whereas the younger generation, there are issues, absolutely, but they're more willing to talk about those issues going forwards. And so I think that's where we need to change the conversation from pointing the finger towards the Gen Z and Gen X 
and we need to be able to support people, especially within that 40 to 50 year old bracket. And as you know, Lee, I lost a friend um, and my mentor to suicide that was in exactly in that bracket. He was 45 years old. He was one of the youngest directors of a FTSE 100 company. Just he was flying in terms of his career, an amazing partner and two children that I coached at cricket. And he tragically ended up taking his own life due to a, a short uh, bout of stress. So that's the, the scale of, of the issue at the moment. And it's it's not as simple as putting people into sort of brackets with demographics. But the major issue is men within a certain age. So how do we address that? I think there's so there are so many things that we need to do to address it. There's not one sort of single solution within. One thing we need to do is to empower men to to talk about their well-being. It's really interesting to look at the in certain communities, the pub and churches, for example, if you're if you're a Christian faith, are a place where men can go to talk about some of these issues. And although drinking huge amounts of alcohol again isn't a good thing for our mental health, it is a place where a lot of people go to really unwind and really have a conversation. So I think there need to be solutions that get people to open up naturally. We need to start the conversation. There are small tips that we can do as individuals ourselves for our friends in terms of asking twice if people are okay. So if I was to ask you, are you okay, Lee? And you'd go, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. But are you sure you're okay? Small things like that can have a huge impact in terms of getting people to open up going forwards. And there's a lot of talk as well. And this sounds a little bit fluffy, but it really isn't because the biggest companies in the world are implementing it and they're seeing huge returns on their investment from it is around developing psychologically safe spaces where people can make mistakes, where people can open up and just be human. We're not robots. We're not artificially intelligent. We need to be emotionally intelligent. And just having spaces and environments where people can open up and talk, I think, is a hugely important thing. And Google found that every single high-performing workplace that does that and develops a psychologically safe workplace then is high-performing. It, it really was that simple in terms of their research. So they'd be a few things that I do. I think also access to NHS therapies needs to be more clear, but also we need to focus on prevention at the heart of it. At one point in James's life, he wasn't struggling with his mental health. How could we have supported him at that stage as well as when he started experiencing suicidal thoughts and he, he slipped into crisis. Are, are you seeing, without asking you to, to name names clearly, but are you seeing organisations make those sorts of changes to which you refer, provide those psychological safe places, those sorts of environments? Are, are you seeing that happening? My sense is that certainly you hear a lot of talk about it, but in practical terms, is it actually taking place? Is the, And is it happening at a, a quick enough pace? Um, I, I'll be honest, not in every organisation, in some. In the ones that I would want to work for and other people want to work for, it is. And they see the importance of it and employee engagement and culture. And it all ties into well-being at the heart of it. In the organisations that want to tick a box, I think it's really backfiring in all honesty. And I've, I've seen a lot of my friends leave big organisations and they're very talented people because they're saying, we do all of this stuff for you. And then they're forcing them to work 16 hour days. It just doesn't quite add up there. Uh, and there might be a bullying culture, for example. So for the organizations that truly want high performance, for the organizations that truly want to embrace a positive culture, they are doing it. But there are always some organizations that just want to tick a box. And they're going to really, quite frankly, if I'm speaking openly, get bitten in the ass at some point in the, the not too distant future, because people are going to lead to other organizations that can pay the same amount, but then look after them in a, in a proper and appropriate way. It'd be really interesting. It's undeniably, you know, if you look at the way that the workplace has evolved 
has been forced to evolve over the last 12 months as a consequence of the pandemic, working from home. You know, once upon a time that, you know, there was an awful lot of, of management around. If I can't see you, you're not working. So therefore presenteeism became an attitude in the workplace and people were deeply, broad sweeping statement, clearly not everybody was, but people deeply suspicious about the, this idea of working from home. Some organisations have been doing it for years, but for most organisations, my sense is it's been a challenge. That genie is now well and truly out of the bottle and nobody's going to stuff that cork back here. All cliches apply. Yeah. So organisations that are unwilling to engage in some of the practices to which you refer, organisations that aren't willing to, you know, whilst you know, anyone can write a value statement or a, a set of behaviours on a wall, actually living and breathing them becomes is a, is a distinctly different challenge. Those organisations that don't are going to not only, you know, heaven forbid forego you know let's try and forego the, the very worst impacts the like of which we've touched on but even just things around attracting and retaining talent and continuing to succeed as an organization if you can't provide that environment people will vote with their people yeah, make a choice exactly and, and at the moment we're finding absence status decrease but well-being's got worse so that indicates that people are working through um, really struggling to be honest and, and organizations need to start this conversation and not sweep it under the carpet and I also saw recently that Netflix have been praised and I put a LinkedIn post about it um, for treating their employees like adults now if we're just to take a step back that's crazy that they're being praised for treating their employees like adults but I'm sure we all know one organization or our friends have worked in an organization where they've been treated like children they've been watched and, and checked up on regularly and micromanaged and if you want speed, if you want innovation, if you want sales, if you want creativity, if you want all of these things that we need that leads to cognitive functioning and then performance, you've got to treat people like adults first and foremost. And Netflix have been hugely praised for it. And it's no surprise because just not enough organizations do do that. And, and if yours does, then that's the kind of organization I want to work for going forwards. But you're absolutely spot on, whether it's attracting or retaining talent whether it's sickness absence, whether it's productivity, whether it's getting a big sale over the line, whether it's creativity, whether it's innovation and research and development, it, whether it's culture, whether it's morale, motivation, we could keep going. It's all impacted by well-being and well-being no longer is a fluffy thing. It's a thing for performance and business performance and shareholder return. How do we prevent this? Some of, some of the, I think, very positive changes that have come about as a consequence of the pandemic. How do we prevent them, if you like, from becoming a temporary change? And is there a risk that people over time revert to type? Because, you know, there's, there's, we get comfortable, don't we? we it's human nature. There are going to be some organisations that are going to want to get back to something that feels a little bit like normal. And my concern is that for some, it's kind of like, right, pandemic's over, guys. Back to, let's get back to the same old, same old. To reiterate on our, on our on the discussion we've just had, they, those organisations are going to, struggle for retention my sense and they'll they'll feel the pain over time but they're still going to are there things that organizations can do now that will or that you're seeing that are doing now to ensure that the direction of travel is maintained yeah you asked some really good questions here um, and they're, they're good challenging questions as well that i'm sure I'm sure many people would resonate with i think for me that it's so easy to just focus on a short-term solution and short-term solutions in anything, they don't work generally. Behaviour change, and that's what we're talking about here, cultural change and behaviour change is a long-term thing. And so you do need to look at it from a long-term angle. You're not going to suddenly cure depression overnight for your team. That's just not going to happen. Whereas building a medium to long-term strategy when it comes to well-being, 
tying that into diversity and inclusion, tying that into learning and development, tying that into your business objectives as well is absolutely core and fundamental. I think the way that organizations that have implemented something now and don't implement it in the long term will feel is they're going to they're going to have an impact um, a negative impact on them in the coming years and months and that's the way that then they're going to realize that they needed to keep this up i think you can lose momentum very quickly when it comes to well-being it's very easy to go back into the office and say okay everything is normal again but employees will start leaving and that's going to hurt you've then got to recruit someone you've then got to train someone daily because it's not quite right and all of a sudden, your organization's crumbling away in front of you. And it sounds very dramatic at the moment within here, but this is the, the real case scenarios within workplaces at the minute. And employees really need to be supported at every step of the way. But they also need to be empowered so they can look after themselves. And the organization isn't just the only focus in terms of supporting employees. They do need to support themselves as well. And I think that's very important to note. Yeah, I guess the organisation becomes a facilitator, does it? So if it starts to engender this type of culture and starts to encourage this kind of behaviour and make accessible these sorts of solutions and, and services for people, then it becomes... Embedded. A, a very much more normal... It's embedded, absolutely. It becomes just a normal... It just becomes a normality in much the same way that, you know, you kind of... I'm mean, really interested when we, we talked earlier about the sort of preventative element to much of what you're describing is that... You know, I, 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 it's a daft analogy. It's the only thing I can think of. But you know, for, for years, and maybe it's a bit of experience and a few bad injuries, but for years, I kind of always worked on the principle of if something hurts, I'll go get it fixed. Yeah. But I probably should stretch a little bit more. But that seems like a bit of a pain in the neck and I love to run. And I probably haven't got time to stretch afterwards or so I won't stretch or I won't go and see a chiropractor until something goes in my back or whatever it might be. So for years, I would kind of create problem go fix it. That, and that was, I think part of that is also culturally an upbringing that was, you know, you hurt yourself, you go to a doctor, you get a pill or a tablet or, um, or, you know, a plaster or whatever it might be. And it's fixed. I think part of the challenge is that some of the things we're talking about here are so intangible. I think historically that's always been part of the, you know, you, you break your leg, you get a cast on your leg, you walk around town and people say, my goodness, what happened to you? Poor you. How long are you going to have that on? When's it coming off? How will you be? What's your rehab? When will you be back playing cricket again? Whatever it might be. If suffer with mental, any form of, of mental health issue, because people can't see it, it's difficult for some people to wrap their head around. And I would imagine then you translate that into the business context, because then arguably, I was going to say, you can't measure it. How you measure it, how you measure its impact. Maybe you can't, attribute a specific number to it and therefore being the language of business it gets ignored and heaven forbid organizations wait until something awful happens before they truly address these things there's a lot of chat i'm going around in all sorts of thought processes and circles here but i guess how do we get this kind of preventative focus around health and because i guess also the other thing that struck i'm sorry this is getting me off in all sorts of tangents all sorts of all sorts of thoughts flying around the thing that strikes me about how medicine works certainly western medicine yeah Clearly, and this isn't me uh, espousing conspiracy theories or doing down Big Pharma or anything of that sort of nature, but clearly there's an awful lot of money made by giving someone a pill that doesn't necessarily fix a problem, but just keeps you taking the pill to manage the problem. So there's, a, there's an incentive for organizations to keep giving you the pill. Yeah. You then start to introduce the preventative element. So preventative healthcare, in my, to my mind, my first thought is it might not make money. 
it certainly saves a huge amount of money if you look yeah. at the implications and the impact on the NHS of some of the things you're describing. So I get the argument that it saves money, but does it make money? And so is that is that also part of the challenge that culturally we need to kind of shift to embrace more preventative methodologies, thought thinking before we can start to even shift the dynamic? I think so. I think the organisations that are thriving are those that recognise that and are very forward thinking. But in terms of, yeah, as you say, Western society and Western medicine, there's a really strong analogy, whether it's a business analogy or a health and wellbeing analogy of painkillers versus vitamins. So I take painkillers when I'm in pain. I don't take vitamins regularly because there's not an issue. And that's what we really need to change the, the, the language around. And if you look at the NHS, it's purely reactive and it's reacting to problems that are occurring rather than proactive. It's the same when it comes to a lot of workplace health, that we've got EAPs, so that's a counselling provider, we've got physiotherapy. So when you experience pain, then you can go into those services. Well, actually, the return on investment is twice as great for proactive solutions than reactive solutions. And that's a paper that was published by Deloitte um, last year. So the average return on investment for £10,000, let's say, that's invested, you will get £60,000 return. So it's a six to one ratio. With reactive, it looks at three to one ratio. So I'm not, I think we still need the reactive elements, of course, but let's look at prevention and let's, let's focus on a more proactive stance. And that's really what Champion Health are here to do, is to keep you well initially, but then how do we get you well if you are struggling? Because we can't prevent everything, but we want to try and prevent as much as we can, as much as we can do. It makes sense for the individual. It makes sense for the business. It makes sense for absolutely everyone in, in society. So what more would you like to see done to encourage the wider conversation around health and well-being? I think data-driven decisions is really important. That If you can't see it, it's the old adage of what gets measured gets managed. And if you can't see something, there's no pain there. There's no real drive to measure it and to, to optimize it going forwards. So that's something we've worked really hard on as a team is to be able to measure well-being. So through the data-driven decisions, the organization in an anonymized confidential way, so you can't identify anyone off the back of it, you can see the health and well-being of the organization. So is it sleep that's the big problem that's leading to productivity loss? Is it high stress? Or have we actually got the stress levels just at the right amount? Because there is a good amount of pressure and stress that we all need to thrive. And so sharing that data with the FD, with the CEO, with HR, then they can see the pain. And it might be that 55% of the workforce are struggling with insomnia, for example. That then makes a whole lot of sense to then invest in some sort of solutions and interventions to support their team. So making it data-driven is really important for any CEO, FD, HR to engage with well-being. And do you think that from a, a broader societal perspective, the conversation is being pushed up the, the agenda, that we are getting better at talking about these things? Are we, are we good enough? Could we ever be good enough, arguably? Yeah, I think I, I might have a bit of a sort of growth mindset in terms of we can always get better with stuff and we can always take learnings and and improve. But I think we have come a long way. And for a lot of people, this last year was the biggest challenge they've ever faced. It, it was for so many people I know. And they're facing battles and challenges personally, but also with other people within their life, their family, their friends, for example. So I think we do need to give ourselves a lot of credit. And self-compassion is a big thing coming out of the psychology world in terms of not beating ourselves up and not being unrealistic with goals so we don't achieve them. I think we've come a hell of a long way. There is further to go, without a doubt. And there's roles that we can all play as individuals. But I think if we're always striving for better and for more, um, that can sometimes be 
a slightly unhealthy outlook that we, we can never really be satisfied um, and content with what we've achieved. And I do think the conversation in the last year has really accelerated, but just touching upon a point or a, a question that you asked earlier, we do need to keep it up as a society going forwards because it, it does concern me that we could just slip back into the old ways in the future. So tell me, Harry, what drives you? Uh, I think there's there's two things. One thing is an impact and having an impact, as I touched upon. I think having lost a, a friend, a mentor, the person that I wanted to be when I was 45 years old, you'll never lose that drive. I never want anyone to, to have to attend a, a day like I attended at his funeral. I never want to have to see someone's partner deliver a eulogy on someone that was taken way too early. And I, I want to truly, truly help people. I think that's something that does get me up in the morning and gets me through those hard times that there are in any startup. I think the other thing for me personally, and this is where a lot of people in startups just say everything's mission driven. I want to be financially stable as well um, and secure within my life. I think that's a massive thing within society is that a lot of people are under financial stress and, and I never want to really have to experience that. So if I'm fortunate to have a family in the future, I want to be able to provide for them and give them the best possible opportunity to thrive. So I think that future-focused element is is always important within my mindset. But the first thing, and I mentioned earlier, is impact. The second thing is then around stability. And they're the two things that really get me up um, and get me going for for every day. So so what does success mean to you? Uh, I think it it again goes back to an impact. It it goes back to being able to deliver value and delight to our members, to organisations, to boost productivity, to improve well-being, but also to employees. The two things aren't against each other. Business versus employees, I really don't like that mindset. If we've got happy, healthy employees, we'll then have a happy, healthy business. And it sounds a little bit, again, cliche. I started off with some cliches, so I apologise. But we need to make sure that those two things marry up. And that success to me is when employees feeling are feeling valued and are feeling like they're supported in the workplace. And when organizations feel like their employees are doing everything they can do and they're really bought into the vision, the mission, the goals of the company, and they're putting in all of their effort within working hours. So that's what success would look like to me when you can get those two things to marry up. I think that's a really, uh, it's a golden moment for, for working in the space that I work in. So who or what inspires you? I think my mum, I touched upon the my mum's story earlier on and I re- it's incredible what she's achieved with three children and I probably wasn't the easiest child to bring up. I think I talked too much and, uh, and wanted to disturb all her meetings when she was delivering wills and probates and so on. And I, she's just got through a lot to be able to still be running a successful law firm, grow, grew organically did it the hard way in the early days um, and now is able to, to enjoy her life. I think that's a, a huge inspiration. And there's a big thing in Sheffield, obviously a steelwork city of the women in steel. And she's done things such as sponsoring campaigns around that and really breaking stigma about women in business. And that, that's a huge inspiration to me in terms of what she's achieved and the, the legacy she's, she, I think she's going to retire hopefully um, in the near future because she needs to. She's worked too hard for too many years. But she's going to leave behind a massive legacy for people. And so that that's one thing. I think my, my partner as well, she's a nurse. She works night shifts. She works 12 and a half hour shifts. And no matter how hard my day is, it's not as hard as hers. And, and she never uses that against me. Um, and when I say I'm tired after she's just done three back-to-back night shifts, she'll never have a go at me. So I, I do need to credit her for that um, because I am guilty of that sometimes. 
but I think she's a real inspiration and a, again a bit of a rock to me. So I think it's the people closest to me, and also Ricky, um, the co-founder at Champion Health. He really just keeps me going during those hard times, and we keep each other going. So um, I think they're the the three people that I I owe a lot to in in so many ways. What do you think? Coming back to your mum, what do you think you've learned from her? How to how to be resilient and get my own way. I guess she's very good at that as a lawyer. Um, that's what you want in your corner, isn't it? So. But jokes aside, I think she, she's one of the most resilient people. Um, she's very solution focused at all times. And so I think that's a, a key thing within business. Well, what's the problem? Let's understand it, whether the problem is a, a legal problem or a well-being problem. And then what can we do together to be able to provide a solution going forwards? And I think that's really been etched into to my mindset in terms of every problem that you face that there is a solution to and we can work through it together as a client and as an organization. So I think that's one thing. I think just the the sheer determination to get out of bed every morning and be able to turn up for work, being able to support her team through various issues and even over the last year, just being there for them. Um, I think the determination I've really taken from her as well within there. And then just providing delight and value to um, society and to her to her clients have been a big thing. Her clients are very different to mine. They're, they're slightly older than mine. But the, the sort of the ethos is the same. She wants to deliver value and delight and insight to them at every stage of the sort of in inverted commas user journey. And I've taken a lot away from that, but obviously um, applied it in a different space. First and foremost, in a, in a business context, your, your mum aside and your partner aside, in terms of who you admire, who you look up to, those those figures in business. I think you made mention earlier that you'd studied Spotify, Apple, yeah. Netflix in terms of organisations. But are there specific figures that you you admire in business that you take your lead from and if so who might they be you've had one of them on this show so somehow I do need to say a massive thanks to I don't want this to be a massive thank you for everyone that supported me so we could keep going for ages but Matt Macri Waller and he's become a friend as much as anything he's mentored me and Ricky from the early stages he's shown so much faith when he didn't necessarily need to and so he's been a huge inspiration. He's grown a, an organization called Benefex, which do something very complementary to Champion Health, and they're one of our partners. So Matt's really provided me with the skills um, and asked tough questions um, at times to just get me thinking and has provided some really useful and practical advice. So I think Matt's, Matt's one person. I think Reed Hastings, if we're to go for sort of more celebrity focus from Netflix um, and his whole ethos of moving quickly, um, where speed meets innovation and always getting ahead. I really admire the way that he's gone about things. Um, and again, I mentioned before, treating their team like adults. It seems so simple, but it's often not the case of trusting people and trusting people to get the job done. So I'd, I'd say he's the other one. And the final one, I think it has to be James. So my, my friend and mentor that I mentioned earlier in the podcast that tragically ended up taking his own life. He worked so hard to be able to get to where he got to. He was extremely successful and taught me a lot of principles that I'll never forget within business. And I've got, a, yeah, I've got a huge amount of, of respect and admiration. And I really just want to um, develop a legacy for him as much as anything. So what about away from, from work? How do you, how do you unwind? Do you unwind? How do you relax? It's one of the hard things, honestly. Um, and I, I'll say that I practice everything that I preach, but I'll, I'll be slightly lying at times. So I, I do try and um, sleep's the big thing for me. If I sleep well, I'm productive. I perform much better. I eat much better. I exercise. My mental health's in a good place. 
so sleep's the sort of foundation pillar for me for all of where, where all of my well-being then sits. So I, I sleep a lot. I sleep around nine hours to 10 hours a night and we'll be in bed for half nine, 10. So I'm not much fun now. I, yeah, a lot of my friends that are made at university think I'm the most changed person in the world. Yeah, so uh, we won't go on to my university days within this podcast, but we could do when we catch up over a beerly. But I'd say sleep's the, the number one thing for me. If I sleep well, everything else falls into place. I always try and switch off after eight o'clock. And one of the biggest things for me is I don't have notifications for emails on my phone because our phone naturally is by the side of our bed as we go to sleep. It's a load of rubbish saying don't use your phone before bed because naturally we're all going to do that. We're, we're sort of conditioned to do that now. So switching off emails has been a major thing for me. So I'm not concentrating after eight o'clock. But I also want to be really open and honest that I work long hours. I've got to do that to be able to get the organization into the place that I want to to have that impact. So yeah, I make sure that I eat well, but first and foremost, sleep well, and then performance comes after that and then everything else comes after that. With, with the benefit of hindsight with respect to champion health, as you look back, is there anything that you would have done differently? Loads of stuff. Absolutely loads. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, hindsight is wonderful, isn't it? But we, we wouldn't be in this position without it. I think I mentioned earlier recruiting and we just recruited experience rather than people that are going to drive value. And that was one thing we, we learned the hard way. I think the, there are other elements around the platform and we learned so much about the platform, about the technology and about human psychology and behavior. And we just listened to people quite simply. And that was one of the big things that Matt Macri, um, Waller really encouraged me to do is just listen. And I think listening is a massively underrated skill, whether you're in sales, um, whether you're yeah in, in any walk of life, in all honesty, listening is one of the most important things going forwards. In terms of other other lessons, again, there were just so many micro lessons along the way that I would have changed now. But without those learnings and without those failures, um, and there've been some pretty big ones and some smaller ones, I don't think we'd be in this position generating the impact that we're having, employing the amount of people that we are as an organisation. So what advice would you give 21-year-old Harry Bliss? I think I'd give him the same advice as what I did, just break things, just do it and break things. And especially then, just be fearless. I think I was slightly held back and reserved because I'd seen all these people with these grand titles. But actually, when it came down to it, five years on, I've realized that titles don't really mean anything. And there's there's a lot of people in positions of power that don't necessarily make the right decisions um, and make them for the right reasons sometimes as well. So I think just having that element of sort of that, that fearless attitude I wish that I had a little bit more of, but just that slight insecurity was also a really good thing as well because it made me just learn and absorb things and trust people along the way. So I don't think I'd have changed too much, to be honest. Maybe have take, maybe have left my organisation slightly earlier, but again, I learned what not to do working there. And that was one of the best things for me to then learn what to do. Um, so I think I've made mistakes, but I wouldn't have changed any of them. There are, there are definitely no regrets. So what advice would you give any aspiring entrepreneur with a dream? Just do it. Just break, yeah, break things. Um, have fun along the way. Don't take yourself too seriously. There's more to life than your business as well. And that's something that's really hard to remember sometimes is that your business is a, a huge part of your life and it's a huge part of the, the why behind why you get up in the morning. And people sometimes say, I work too long. Am I not going to practice what I preach? Well, this is something that is so ingrained and means so much to me that this is actually a really important part of my well-being and it gives me a sense of fulfillment that I'm achieving something. So I'd say be confident in yourself. It's really easy to, to doubt yourself at times, 
surround yourself and this is a very common bit of advice but it is so important surround yourself with people that get the most out of you and then you can get the most out of them as well so the rickies that i mentioned within this podcast um the matt macri wallers as mentors for example um, i don't want to advertise matt's time because he's very very busy um but people like that try and find these people because they do make such a difference when it comes to your own well-being as much as anything as a founder because it does uh, take a bit of a hit at times um, but also the the likelihood of success so can we expect to see you donning the whites this summer do you think you'll uh, be out there again enjoying the sound of leather on willow anytime soon well, there wouldn't be the leather on willow it'd be the leather on the on the stumps probably um with the, <laughs> with the way that i've netted recently i might play a few games um but I'd, i've got a, a yeah I'd, I'd like to see as much of my family as possible because that's a very easy thing especially over the last year we, we've not spent enough time with our loved ones cricket's an infuriating game sometimes and arguably is one of the most stressful things especially when you set off at 8.30 in the morning, you get back at 10 o'clock at night and you've got a first ball duck um, and you've paid 10 quid for the privilege and some petrol as well. And you've eaten a load of rubbish food and drunk some beer. So, um, but I'd love to love to play sometimes, but the commitment is just a bit too big um, to play week in, week out. Harry, I, I think it's, it's wonderful what the work that you're doing with Champion Health. It's, you know, they're, we're lucky that there are people out you like you out there in the world and no pun intended, but championing the health of and well-being of of the nation, frankly, certainly you know. So I think it's it's such an important issue, and I wonder that therefore, you know, listeners that want to find out more about Champion Health, where can they find you? How can they get in touch? Kind of where you know, social media, website. What, what's the what sort of contact details should they be uh, should they be looking out for? Yeah, well, just drop me a, a LinkedIn um, request. So follow Harry Bliss. I'd love to connect with you. Message me, I'll reply. Drop me an email at harry.bliss at championhealth.co.uk. I'm, I'm never too busy. And if there's any way that I can help you um, or one of, one of your loved ones, then point them in the right direction or whether we're, we were to work together in the future, I'd love to hear from you. But also follow Champion Health and you can uh, you can Google Champion Health. We've got a lovely website which will take you through the, the platform that I, I mentioned before and the why and our story is explained in a little bit more depth and detail. But don't hesitate to, to reach out to me as well. I think that's um, that's something that, that people arguably don't do enough um, within within our society now. Harry, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you this afternoon. I really appreciate your time, your candor and, uh, and your insight. And uh, I wish you every success, continued success with Champion Health and, uh, and all that you have in front of you. Uh, and uh, as I say, all the very best to the future and uh, my thanks for your time. Thank you. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.